listening to Cooper Talk. Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. And remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. And I got to tell you something, people. I'm, a, I'm on a blood thinner. And so what that means is I have it because of my irregular heartbeat. And I do it so I don't basically have a stroke. But the problem is when you're on a blood thinner, you basically, if you bleed, you bleed a lot. Now, luckily, I don't bleed a lot. The other day, I hit my knuckle and it started bleeding. And it was these little drops coming out and it would not stop. And I told a friend of mine, I said, man, this is awful. And he's like, what happens when you cut yourself uh, shaving? And I said, well, to be honest, I thought about it. I have not cut myself shaving in 20 years. And I'm thinking about it because I don't even use shaving cream. I just get out and I zip it up, man. And I'm thinking, that's something I should start bragging about. Like if I'm at a dinner party and some guy's like, oh, I just closed this big deal. Or or some doctor's like, I just saved the guy on the table. I'm just going to look at them and go, you know what? I have not cut myself shaving in 20 years, and I bet they'll be impressed. Anyway, we have a great show today. Uh, my guest is very impressive. Uh, he was actually, he's, i got to talk later to him about, he was on a show on HBO that I, I loved, and I can't find it anywhere, and he just got back from the San Francisco Sketch Fest, and my guest is Taylor Nichols. How you doing, Taylor? I'm good, Steve. How you doing? Though? I'm doing well. So, uh, so what and, was... and I gotta tell you, I am very impressed with your 20 year run. I know it's crazy. I was thinking about it, and because a long time ago when I did stand up, I was on the road, and this guy said, "This guy Paul Lyons told me never use shaving cream. It's some, you know, it's a marketing ploy. You don't need it." So I stopped using shaving cream. I get out and I get one of those razors with like the strip, and I never cut myself. And it amazes me because we sh- every guy should cut himself. When's the last time you cut yourself shaving? You know, I just don't shave that much. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, I, I I I always tend to work more with you know a goatee or a beard or something. So I just kind of let it go and and then use a uh, an electric razor that has a little comb on it that you know keeps you from getting too too close to your face. Right. I I got that for Christmas, but I'm, I won't use it. I I'm bald, and my and uh, my wife got me a a card to a barber shop so they could trim my goatee because when I do it, half of it pops off or it gets thin. So, so I'm like the hell with it. Anyway, you were, uh, I want to hear about uh, Sketchfest. Tell me, tell my listeners about that. You know, if people, if you don't know, uh, Sketchfest is a big event that happens in San Francisco every year and Taylor is up screening Metropolitan and uh, tell me, tell me what happened. How did it all, how did this all come about? You know, I, I'm not sure how it came about. Sketchfest started uh, about 19 years ago. This was the, the, the 19th uh, uh, Sketchfest. And uh, one of the founders, David Owen, was a comic and uh, did improv in San Francisco. I think he met some of his partners at, at San Francisco State University 20 years ago. And they were looking for a space to do their improv show um, you know, right, right out of college. And they couldn't get a space for less than a month rental. So they said, well, screw it. Let's just make a festival of it, invite all our friends to come and also perform for this month long while we have this space. And that was the impetus for the, for the sketch fest. And now I got to tell you, man, it's, 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 it's something, it's quite big. Uh, we, we had a blast. Uh, I think David, uh, is a big, big fan of Rich Stillman's movies. Um, Metropolitan, Barcelona, Disco, uh, Dangers in Distress. And so David contacted Wit, I guess, and they screened both Metropolitan and, and Barcelona on Saturday. So Wit and I and Mira, Mira Sorvino were up there and, uh, 
and some other uh, for up there for the for the screenings. And we had a, a, a great audience and a great Q&A, and it was just a lot of fun, as well as the hotel and the town is just packed with comics and and uh, improv artists, and we went to a, to a couple of shows that were just great. So it was really fun. I, I highly recommend it. It's running through, um, I believe, January 27th, something like that. So it's still going on. Now... What was it like seeing yourself on the big screen years later? Because I believe, what, it's been almost 30 years since Metropolitan came out? Yeah, 30 years since, since Metropolitan came out, 25 since Barcelona. Um, I haven't seen Barcelona probably since it first came out, since, you know, since it first came out 20, 25 years ago. Um, I have seen snippets of, of Metropolitan at screenings or something like that. Um, I just look young, <laughs> or, or I look old now. I don't know. Um, w- one of the really nice things about both movies is is they they hold up um, with dialogue and and storytelling is just so clever and funny, and the the snippets of, of moments are just really unique, and which voice is so unique. Uh, the movies hold up. They're they're funny, and the audience. It's fun to see them with an audience, with an audience that knows the movies, likes them, because uh, they they tend to sort of really get all the inside jokes and stuff like that. So, so you're originally from Louisville. Um, what made you gravitate towards acting? You know, I'm actually not from Louisville. Somehow that got out there. Um, I'm from Lansing, Michigan. Okay, he's funny because my, my family is is all from Louisville. My my mother and father, and my brothers and my aunt and uncle and grandmothers and all that are are from Louisville, Kentucky. But I was actually born in Lansing, Michigan. I'm the only Yankee in our family. And uh, but my my I come from a fairly artsy family. My grandmother Dorothy Park Clark was a, a renowned um, author uh, and you know, had many books on the New York Times bestseller list in the 40s and early 50s. And, uh, and uh, my older brother is an opera singer and a, and a, and a music professional. And I have a nephew who's a chamber singer and a music professional. And um, the real reason I got into acting is because someone told me in college I'd make a good middle manager at a car company. <laughs> and I couldn't think of a fate worse than death than that. So... I chose a different path. Now, now, where did you go to college at? I, I went to the uni- University of Michigan. Uh, again, I grew up in, in East Lansing, where Michigan State University is. My mom taught English there for a little while. But I went to U of M across the state. And uh, by the time I, I graduated, I was really just studying acting and theater classes and things like that. But I, my, my degree is a Bachelor of General Studies in, in business and uh, theater. So. so now you graduate, you're in Michigan. What are your plans when you graduate? How do you how do you start making your dream come true? Because you don't want to be a middle car manager, so you want to act. What, yeah, what, that's the last thing I wanted to do. Yeah, I, I, um, what, what do you what do you do? You know, I was a I was a chubby kid with a stutter, and so uh, I, I just you know, I I didn't know what acting offered for me necessarily. Um, I got a job right away in Aspen, Colorado at the grand grand finale and the Crystal Palace. It was a, a dinner theater owned by a man named Mead, Mead Metcalf. And my girlfriend at the time and I drove out there and auditioned for him. 
and got the jobs. And I spent the next two years of my life living in Aspen, Colorado, uh, per- performing every night, doing um, political uh, satire, comedy, musical comedy stuff, and waiting tables and skiing all day. And um, it was really a wonderful job. It was it was a blast. People who know Aspen from the 80s, 90s, and the early 2000s know of the Crystal Palace. It was a pretty famous uh, dinner theater restaurant in in town, and a lot of wonderful people worked there. It was a it was a cross between people who were on their way up in the business and people who had been in New York and were on their way out of the business. And this this dinner theater in Aspen was kind of a uh, uh, a way station for those two, those two paths. And there were a lot of really talented, wonderful people there. But the best part was just being on stage every night. I was on stage every single night. And, you know, you just get good at selling a song or selling a, a comedy bit or, you know, finding the timing. And, and just, just being on stage was, was in, invaluable. Now, at that, at that point, in, you know, you're young, you're doing it, and you're honing your craft, which is great. Did, did you want to sit there? Did, were you thinking about pursuing a career in theater, or were you pers- thinking, I get, get it in TV, or were you just saying, I don't care because I'm acting and this is what I love? Um, that, that, that's a good question. It was really sort of, I don't care, I'm acting, that's what I want to do. Um, I think I saw myself in the theater more. Um, that's what took me to New York. After two years in Aspen, I, I moved to New York, as opposed to coming out to L.A. Uh, you know, I was already halfway out to L.A. coming from Michigan, and it would have been easy to have you know, made the jump and come the rest of the way. But it just seemed like New York was, was in, in the cards for me. Theater was, was sort of more what I wanted to do, more what I was good at, more, more what I had done. Um, and then even musical theater at that was sort of more, and that's that's just more of a New York path than than L.A. I don't think I ever would have would have come to L.A. So, so except you, for you know you know TV bringing me out here, right? So so you move to New York. Do you start getting work, or how do you how do you parlay moving to New York to being in Metropolitan? Well, um, I, I'm a big bike rider. I'm, I'm a big cyclist, and when I was in Aspen, I really got into biking and all that. So uh, when I first moved to New York, I got a job at a bike store. Uh, bike store is still there on 90, 96th and Broadway on the Upper West Side. And uh, it was great. I loved it. I rode my bike everywhere and really got into the bike culture uh, and then kind of used that time to study. And I studied acting with a guy named Terry Schreiber, who still has a studio in New York. It's on 23rd and uh Maybe 7th Avenue, 8th Avenue, it's in Chelsea. He, he moved from when I was in his, in his class. But Ed Norton studied there. Uh, Troy, Troy Ruptash studied there. A lot of really wonderful actor-directors uh, came out of Terry's program. And I studied with Terry Schreiber for, you know, a good two years, pretty, pretty seriously. That was my, my real training. And, uh, and I did a lot of theater in New York, um, off, off Broadway and then in the Poconos and, you know, upstate New York and things like that. And uh, I was actually in Terry's class. I was doing a scene from the, the Leopold and Loeb play. Uh, gosh, I've forgotten the title of the play, but it's about the thrill killers in Chicago in the 1920s. These two really rich young men kill a, kill a, a boy. Uh, and it's a true story. It's based on a true story. 
And because I was doing a scene from that play in Terry's class, I was dressed up kind of like a preppy. And uh, I went to this open call for uh, for Met- Metropolitan. And uh, that's how I met with, with Stillman. And, you know, he, he often says, you know, Taylor came in costume. And, you know, I wasn't in costume at all. I was in costume for a play I was doing. And, uh, but it turned out that it was the same kind of outfit that the characters and in Metropolitan would wear. Now, and uh, and that, that was the start of a great re- relationship for me. Well, now, what was the process of you getting it, Roy? I mean, you know, you went to this audition, you went to the call, you came in costume, even though you didn't know you were in costume, which is always a plus. Right. And so how, was, how long did it take you to get cast in the role? And were you ready to be in a movie? Because you were a good actor, you had studied, but you had so much stage behind you. It's a completely different animal. It is. Um, I was not ready to be in a movie um, because I didn't really understand how movies worked. Um, and, you know, again, this was in 1989. This was before everybody was making movies. This was before you could make a movie on your telephone. We didn't even have, you know, cell, cell phones. Um, videotape wasn't even all that big yet. People were still shooting on, you know, Metropolitan was shot on Super 16, which means that the, the, the perforation is only on one, one side of the film. So it's a smaller, it's a smaller picture, but, uh, but you're allowed to be a little bit bigger than regular 16 millimeter. Um, I, I think I was one of the first people cast. Um, Wit had me answer some questions and things like that. Then he gave me some sides, and I went back again a second time and read these super long monologues, which which I was comfortable doing because of my my theater background. Uh, and then I got cast. And then Wit and I and John Thomas, the um, DP, and a few other crew members went around New York City at Christmas time filming me and a couple of other people walking into parties and walking out of parties, just using the infrastructure that was already set up in Manhattan uh, for possible cutaways and, and things like that. Um, and then the rest of the cast came together and we started shooting in, in early or mid, mid-January. But I, I can remember um, shooting the film uh, because my character had these long monologues about um, urban old bourgeoisie and downward social mo- mobility and all that kind of stuff. And after we shot them, I can remember thinking, okay, now I'm really ready to do this, uh, this, this monologue. But, you know, we, we're done. You know, we, we move on. The next day we're shooting a different scene. So it was a real, real trial by fire. Now, so, so the movie wraps... And um, it, it starts getting noticed, and it, you know it had that. Uh, as I, I like to call it, it, was in Philadelphia. It would be played at the Ritz. You know, it's, there's certain like the Ritz Five down off South Street sure. was played the indie movies, and it's only playing in hip cities. When does it start becoming popular, and when do you start getting recognized from that? Uh, well, there's a there's a funny story about that. After we filmed the movie, I think we ended in the spring. Um, I got a job on the national tour of Sugar Babies with Rip Taylor and Carol Lawrence. Um, that was an old uh, Broadway musical that was out on tour now. And so I, I left the city and went out on tour with the show. And uh, in, in, in January, I guess it was, or something like that, uh, the following year, um, we're out on tour. And someone called me at, uh, at the cast house where I was living. And uh, 
said, Taylor, there's a picture of you on the cover of the arts and leisure section of the New York Times. And I literally said, why? You know, I, I couldn't imagine why there would be a picture of me on the cover. And it was because uh, Metropolitan was in the Sundance Film Festival. I think at the time it was called the U.S. American Film Festival. Uh, Sex, Lies, and Videotape had been the big, big film the, the previous year. And then Metropolitan came out the year afterwards and, and got a lot of attention there. Um, but, you know, New York's a tough city, man. I was, I was still waiting tables when New York opened at the Paris Theater in New York. And uh, I worked at a restaurant near, near there called Peter's on 71st and Columbus. And people would go to the movie and come out of the movie and go to come to my restaurant for lunch or dinner <laughs> and say, oh, my God, I just saw a movie you were in. But, uh, but that's also because we weren't paid very much to make movies. <laughs> now, so the movie gets, uh, gets some juice. You know, you're still waiting tables, but you're on the right track. You've done a lot of stage. You know, you're, you're in a movie that has, has heat on it. Where does your career go from then? How does it change when you're, even though you didn't get paid a lot for it, because I know you ended up being in a series right after that. How does it change your right. career when all of a sudden you're in Sundance and back when Sundance was cool? And you're right, back then it wasn't social media blowing everything up. So people were very right. focused on one thing. How did you, how did you, how was it an advantage of that movie becoming popular? actually um first of all being in the movie opened a lot of doors um the, the movie got a lot of attention had a long run at the paris and, and uh and some other theaters around new york and around the country uh got a lot of really wonder wonderful reviews for for wit and the cast um but it also pegged me a little bit uh as being uh, uh a socialite new york um, person rather than really being an actor, which is really nothing, you know, I mean, couldn't be further, further from the truth. But a lot of people thought the cast was, um, really, you know, socialites and not, and not really actors. I think there was one girl who was kind of from that background, Dylan Hunley, uh, but she's turned out to be a wonderful actress and, and musician actually. Um, but Chris Eigeman and myself and a few other people, uh, weren't from that background at all. And so I, I, while it opened up a lot of doors, it did pigeonhole me a little bit into this certain kind of role. Now, after that, though, you became on a show, Man of the People. Was that shot right. in L.A. or was that shot in New York? Or how did you, how did you no, end up was, getting that audition? Was, that, that was shot in L.A. And, uh, it, and again, I think I had said earlier, you know, I don't think I ever would have really come to L.A., um, but the first time I came out to L.A. was when Metropolitan was in the Academy Awards, which was, you know, so much fun and such a great way to come to L.A. for the first time. And then the second time I came to L.A. was to do a commercial. And again, you know, you fly in and someone picks you up at the airport and you stay in a nice hotel and you work and get paid. And then the third time I came to L.A. was to do the pilot of uh, a James Garner vehicle called Man of the People. And... Um, Again, it's a great way to come to L.A. You know, you, you fly in first class and someone picks you up. And um, I had to, I, 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 I remember when I tested for the show, um, when, you, when you audition for a series, you, you go through a couple of auditions first. And then when you're finally down to the last couple of people for the role, you have to do what's called a, a, a network test. 
and they bring in two or three actors for each role. And you often read with, with the star of the film or, or something like that as a chemistry read, uh, whatever. And so I was at, at NBC uh, reading you know, for the network test, and I read with James Garner, and he could not have been more gracious and giving. And, uh, uh, you, know, you know, a lot of actors now don't read with the other actors, but, you know, Garner sat there and read with us and all that. And I'll, I'll never forget, I was, after I was done with the audition, I was kind of sitting in the waiting room, um, waiting for a cab to take me back to the airport, and I was going to fly back to New York. And Garner walks out of the audition room a few minutes later and says, what are you still doing here? And I said, I'm waiting for a cab. And he says, come with me. I'll, I'll give you a ride home. So he gave me a ride back to my hotel in his truck. And uh, as I was getting out of the truck at the hotel, he says, I think you got yourself a job, kid. And it was just <laughs> such a perfect Garner moment. You know, he's just the, the sweetest, nicest, hardest working, uh, most natural actor in, in show business. You know, he's just, he's just really one of those special guys was one of those special guys. Now, so, so then so, the next time I came to L.A. was was to do that show. Now, so, so you, you go and do that show, and I just said, Metropolitan was a low budget. You guys pr- didn't get paid much. You, the crafty probably wasn't anything major. Now right. you're on a James Garner show, so you know there's a budget. It's a sitcom, which back then, network sitcoms had budgets. What was it like transitioning to all of a sudden and you probably had a trailer you what was that like for you i mean was it overwhelming or? i did have a trailer yes yeah because in, in metropolitan and barcelona we did not have trailers but uh uh you know it's really funny you say that because i have a friend who's a director now a, a tv director and he always says to me you know why are actors the only ones with trailers and uh, my answer is well we're the only ones who take off our clothes uh but uh um uh, it, it was. It was actually really great. And and as I felt, I was not fully prepared to shoot Metropolitan. I felt the opposite when it came to uh, Man of the People. I I I I really felt like the lessons I learned working with Wit and on on Metropolitan really prepared me, and my theater background really prepared me to work at the pace of of a of a half hour. Um, scripted show now this, this was a one camera half hour show it was a little bit be, before its time it was not not in front of a live audience it was a one camera half hour show um so i i, I can remember uh, kate Mul- mulgrew was in the cast george weiner uh, uh james garner uh just really a wonderful group of people and um and i i felt you know really really good about the work and i felt like i was prepared and and kind of kind of ready to be there so the show's on, and you're probably thinking, you know, deep down inside, even though people never, I know every actor I talk to and any performer always thinks of the bad instead of the good. It's just the way we're built. But you must have been thinking that you're on a show with James Garner. You must have thought it was going to last longer than it did. <laughs> we did. Everyone did. Uh, first of all, the show was funny. Um, but it was up against Murder, She Wrote, which was a juggernaut at the time. And uh, I think it was at eight o'clock on Sunday night. And I think NBC was trying to counteract the, the popularity of Angela Lansbury and, and Murder, She Wrote. And they put our half hour show with uh, a spinoff from Benson, I believe. And they tried to counteract the, the, the you know, a 
again, juggernaut of, of Murder, She Wrote, and it just didn't do the trick. Um, and we got canceled after after a half a season, which was really a bummer because um, it was it was a really a fun show, and I really enjoyed working with, with uh, Jim Garner and uh, wish it had gone on. But that's that's TV, you know, it's doggy dog. Right, I mean, it's always crazy like that. I've talked to people who are, you hear this cast and you go, how did it get canceled? Where a show's popular, yeah. and then the, the network head changes and doesn't like it because it's not well, his. What's, what's the one famous show that, you know, with all the comics, Stephen Colbert was on it, and I'm, I'm blanking of the name of the show, it was like the, the Ben Stiller show or something like that, and you just can't believe it got canceled because it's, first of all, it was hysterical, and second of all, everyone in the cast is, you know, hugely talented and now super famous. Right. So so the show gets canceled. You have to be a little bit down. But did, now, did you see Barcelona coming? Was that was that in talks when you were on the show? Or what, how did Barcelona come about? Yeah, yeah, we did see it coming. We uh, talked to Chris and me uh, shortly after Metropolitan came out about doing Barcelona. Um, but it, I, I don't think Whitstone has been on your show. Uh, I'm going to see him tonight and I'll, I'll tell him that you should you should uh, talk to him. Um, but one thing about Wit is is he's on his own timeline. And uh, I think the, the movie was supposed to be in 92 and then 93, and then we ended up doing it in 94 or something like that. And so it just took longer than uh, my energy wanted. But, you know, Wit had to, you know, do it on his own schedule. It's his, his script and, and all that. Uh, so it did take a while after... Metropolitan, and after Man of the People was canceled, to do to get to um, Barcelona. Uh, so in that time, I was going back and forth between New York and LA, and I actually ended up doing a couple murder murder she wrote with with Angela Lansbury, and kind of keeping working and keeping learning before we actually started shooting. Well, you know, it's yeah. funny. I'm looking at your IMDb because I always check them out and uh, and how Hollywood has changed because in Murder, She Wrote, you played a few different characters. Now, they yeah, never do more, that. Yeah. They they never sit never. there because I, I don't know why because there's so much more now to watch. But what is that like when you play a different character then you go back and you play another different character but the people you're right. with, Angela Lansbury is still Angela Lansbury. Still Angela Lansbury. You know, it's really funny because I, I sort of played the same character each time I was the red herring, you know, I was the guy who seemed like a good guy in Act 1. In Act 2, he's like, oh, maybe he's got a past, and maybe he's involved in the murder. Act 3, you think I'm, I'm the guy in the murder, and then Act 4, you realize I'm actually not in the murder or someone else. And I played that role almost every, every, every single time. Um, so while I, while I had a different name, and while the... the episode took place in the zoo one time and in a flower shop the next time. It was still kind of the same role. But I, I, I got to tell you, one of my favorite stories about Angela Lansbury, who, just like James Garner, is the salt of the earth, is, you know, uh, old Hollywood, you know, uh, hardworking, um, just really great. We were, we were shooting a scene in Musso and Frank's, the famous bar restaurant here. You know, it's, it's in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Uh, it's, it's in a lot of movies and stuff. Um, Greenberg, Noah, Noah Baumbach's movie, it's in that. And we were shooting a scene in um, Musso and Frank's. And the first lesson Angela taught me was when you eat on camera, you got to really eat. You know, no picking at your food. So we, you know, we just had our lunch over and over again as we shot the scene. And uh, just, you know, really kind of stuff in your mouth. 
But when we were done shooting, she she took me by the arm and she said, have you ever had a mar- martini at Musso and Frank's? And I said, no, I haven't. And then she said, you should stay and have one. <laughs> so I did. I stayed and had a martini at Musso and Frank's and I've been going back there about once a year ever since. It's funny. Uh, I remember uh, my buddy had moved to L.A. and he was a big martini drinker. So one night, this is, God, 15 years ago, 12 years ago, we went on a quest to find a good martini for him. Perfect. And it was, it was before, you know, Uber, but luckily he lived like on off Hollywood Boulevard. So we went to Musso's and Frank's and it's cool because they serve it with um, the little, the little glass and the big shaker. Yeah. And uh, it was good. Yeah. But I'll tell you, the best one we found was at the Burgundy Room, which is down, I think, on Kauai. Oh, yeah, sure. So <laughs> that's, that's old school. Yeah. So, so now uh, Barcelona, what was it like shooting overseas? It was difficult. Um, uh, it was a long shoot. It was about uh, uh, two and a half, three months shoot. Um, we shot a lot at nighttime. Um, uh, the 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 language was a little bit of an issue with uh, with with some of the crew and things like that, and some of the um, actors in smaller roles. Um, uh, I think Whit was under some pressure to kind of you know get his second movie as as well received as his first. Um, and, and, uh, it was, it was, it was, it was hard. Uh, but it was a great deal of fun at the same time. Um, you get to say the kind of dialogue Wit said, there's the great scene where, where Fred says, you know, what's that thing just, just above the subtext. And I say, that's the text. And he goes, that's right. But nobody ever talks about that. I mean, there's just some really wonderful vignettes in the movie. Uh, Trishka Bergen um, is is was was great and has become a good friend of mine. And Mira Sorvino, of course, went on to win an Academy Award uh, after that. And uh, Chris and I just became very good friends, working together, and you know, kind of bantering back and forth off of each other. So while it was difficult, it was a it was a great deal of pleasure at the same time. So. So, and to see it recently, Chris and I uh, watched it recently up at up at, uh, at Sketchfest, and it it holds up. Now the movie that comes out it does well, and it's something that you know you have you have a following. Wit's got a following. Now where do you put where do you put your career now? What direction do you want to go to? You've done a movie, two movies that are popular. You've done a uh, series. You know you've done some guest stars. What is your focus at that point? Are you are you out trying to get a a, a series or what, what, what are you trying to accomplish? You know, what I was shooting for was a sustainable career in indie film. That's what I was really excited about. I'm, I'm really drawn to unique characters, uh, you know, unique situations. Um, I'm one of those actors who kind of falls in between cracks. You know, I'm not, the nerd, but I'm not the leading man either, you know. Uh, um, and and so it was oftentimes difficult to get cast. I, I have struggled throughout my career uh, getting the kind of roles that I that I really want and uh, really think I can time. Not getting the more cookie cutter, stereotypical roles of the again. I just use nerd or leading man or something like that, those, those really aren't appropriate, but, but, uh, 
but because I fall through cracks, I thought indie films was going to be a better fit for me than regular TV. You know, you want a handsome guy, there are handsomer guys. You want a goofier guy, there are goofier guys, you know, and so I'm, I'm kind of in the middle of those two. Well, you were, you were constantly working, you know, you look, as I said, when you go to IMDb, you know, uh, different shows, I mean, Chicago Hope, where you played two different sure. characters, and, and Judging Amy, and then uh, and some comedy. How does, well, first of all, Last Days of Disco, what, how did that come about? Did you once again know you are going to be in a third Wit movie? You know, I did not. I was doing a play in New York. I was doing a play by a writer, Christopher Kyle, uh, at, at Manhattan, not Manhattan, uh, at um, play, Playwrights Horizons. And so I was living in New York. Um, I had my apartment there, and I was doing a play when uh, Last Day of the Disco was being shot. And so Quit asked me to do a couple of small roles um, in that movie. So I, I basically played Charlie Black from Metropolitan in one scene, and I played Ted Boynton from Barcelona in a second scene. Um, interacting with some of the characters in uh, Disco. So I only worked four days or five days, something like that, maybe even less, four days uh, on, on Disco. I was glad to do it, and I had a lot of fun doing it. But uh, 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 I, was, I was busy doing the play at the time. Now, when did you move to L.A.? I started going out there with, minded, with uh, Man of the People in, in 92, and I kind of really moved out there after Barcelona. Um, and so when I was back doing the play, I was, I was just staying in my apartment. But I had already kind of moved out and bought a car and was living, living, living in L.A. And again, you know, I don't think I ever would have lived in L.A., except I kept, you know, finding work out here. So I ended up sort of staying. So you're sitting there, and then the show I love, I love Mind of the Married Man, you know, and and it's funny because you know Bobby Slayton's been on the show a few times, and you know, he goes by Bobby Slayton is hysterical. He, uh, yeah, he's such a he trying to get him like he's so not frantic, but he's like I gotta go now, I gotta go now, and you know, yeah. and it's funny. Yeah. I, I had a connection with him through a guy I used to know in L.A. was his mailman, so. I was always his mailman. No, Are you this, kidding me? Well, I yeah. I mean, I he was his mailman. He goes, oh, Slayton's my mailman. So whenever he see Slayton, he go, oh, Cooper says hi. He's like, yeah, time to go fuck himself. You know, just how Bobby is. <laughs> and I now, now how did uh how did, mind did the married man? First of all, why don't you think that show worked? It was so good. And Mike Binder is is such a talented guy. Mike Mike is one of the hardest working guys I know. You know, we would we would be shooting in Chicago. And we would shoot all day, and then we we shot the in, interiors in L.A. and and the exteriors in, in Chicago, and then after shooting all day, you know, a lot of the cast members would would go out for a drink or dinner, and Mike would go back to his hotel room and rewrite twenty pages of the script, and we would get new pages the very next day. The guy is is a machine. He's he's funny. He's hardworking. He's talented, uh, and and he was fun to work with. We, we had a blast on that show. Um, Mike wrote almost all the scripts. Uh, Rich, um, oh, God, I should have written his name down. The exec producer, I'm sure you know him. He's a stand-up comic. Uh, oh, it's embarrassing. I can't think of his last name. But, but uh, Rich, Rich wrote a few of the scripts, but Mike wrote most of the scripts and directed most of the shows. And, 
we we just had a blast doing that show. We would after every take, uh, let's do it again. You know, we we can do it better. I can I can do it better. I I remember the scene where I got so drunk. You know, let's do it again. We can do it better. And you know, by the fifth, eighth, tenth take, you know, you really get some physical comedy to go along with uh, with the text comedy. And uh, I I had done a movie with Mike just previous to that called called um, Sex Monster. And that's how I met Mike. And that opened the door for uh, Mind, Mind of the Married Man. But I, I think Mind of the Married Man just came along a little bit too early. You know, it was, um, it, I, I think the day that we very first aired was se- September 11th, 2001. And if you remember, that's the day of the World Trade Center and right. all that. And people just didn't want to see a show about a guy who had a beautiful wife who wanted to cheat on his beautiful wife when the world was sort of falling apart, you know? Now, that's true. And now, what was it like working for HBO back then? Because HBO back then isn't what HBO is now. And, you know, and then you, can't, you couldn't get HBO Go or, you know, if you had a certain digital subscription now that you, you don't even need cable to get HBO. What was it like working right. for, you know, you, you had done network, besides the movies, you had done network TV now this is completely different. What is it? Was it? Was there a freedom being on set? Because you said you guys yeah, could keep totally. doing it. Totally, there was there was a liberation and a freedom uh, to to take our time. Mainly, I mean, people often say, "Oh, you can swear on HBO," but that's not what's so great about HBO. What's great about HBO is that I, listen, I'm I'm sure the people in in the office care about money, but it seems like. They care more about quality than they do about money. I just finished doing uh, Perry Mason for HBO, and uh, uh, it's really a, it, it's a it's a wonderful. Se- I mean, I just finished it. I finished it like the December nineteenth or something like that. Uh, it's a wonderful show. Uh, Matthew Reese plays uh, Perry Mason, and John Lithgow's in it. Lily Taylor and Robert Patrick. Uh, uh, just just a great cast and show and it just seems like they care more about the quality of the show than the bottom line and that is how we felt on mind of the married man you know um i think we we shot a half hour show in seven days maybe maybe even eight days which is what most hour-long shows are shot in and that's because we did more coverage we did more takes you know we did more setups uh so it was really freeing. People people often say, "Oh, you can swear on HBO," which of course we did. But but the real freedom is is you're not tied to the bottom line. Well, so you're on that, and as I said, I really enjoyed it. And you can't find it, which is weird. Like I just even I because we have my wife is that's her guilty pleasure. She pays for cable. I don't oh, ask wow, her. Great. I, I don't ask her what she pays for it. I said, you know, we can cut this station. And she's like, but I watched that station. I'm like, you watched that station yeah. once in the last six months. But we have everything. We have every <laughs> channel. And, I'm, you know, right. I, have, I have Comcast. So you, you do the voice control. And I do, and you say, right. mind of a married man, mind of the married man, and some movie comes up. Do you know why it can't be found? Maybe it's on HBO Go. I don't know. But why isn't it out there? You know, I, I don't know why. Um, I it, it was on HBO Go for a while. I know that. People have told me that they've been able to see it. Um, but but I don't know why. Um, and I, I do know that there was talk shortly after we got canceled of bringing it back and doing another season. We only did two two seasons. 
Um, and, you know, I, I don't know. I, I, it, it seemed to me uh, a no-brainer if you had HBO Go just to put everything on there and then let people pick whatever they want. I can't imagine it costs that much to put a show up, up for streaming. Maybe, but, maybe, maybe it is on Go. I have on demand, though, and I go through the demand, and there's, like, everything except that. Yeah. Um, when you get Mike on, uh, that's the question for him, I guess, because he, he, he controls a lot of the rights of all that. At least I think he does. So he, he would know. Um, but but I'm, I'm glad you liked it, because, again, we, we had a lot of fun doing that show. And and a lot of great comics came through. Kevin Pollack was on it at one time, and uh, you know just a lot of great people came through because Mike uh, is is a real supportive uh, stand up comic. Now, when that show ends, what is it like for you to have to now know you have to go back to network TV? You know, I mean, because you're you're coming from such a creative and you know, an environment where, you know, comics, Mike's a brilliant guy, you guys have camaraderie, you could take, you can do 10 takes, nine takes, whatever. What is it like when you had to go back to regular network TV when everything was more strict and I'd say more cookie cutter? Yeah. Um, that's a great, a great question, Steve, because it was tough. Um, first of all, not a ton of work followed. After the show got canceled, I, I struggled for a year or so finding regular regular work, um, which was disheartening, you know, because I, I was very proud of the show. Um, but I can remember the first couple of shows I did afterwards. And when the series regular cast members would say, can we go now? You know, don't you have it? You know, are we done? Uh and I can remember thinking, God, that's completely the opposite of how I felt when I was in that, in that you know, space. You know, we always wanted to do more takes and always wanted to get it better. And uh, uh, it was just funny to, to hear people who weren't necessarily really happy in their job and didn't seem driven to do the absolute best per- performance that they could. And, and that was tough. That that was dis, disheartening. Now, what kind of roles you said it was a year after, like the year after that, was hard for you at times to get work. What kind of roles were you now seen? Like, what kind of roles were you going out for? What were you seen as? You know, as you said, when when Metropolitan came out, you were that certain socialite, you know, the preppy guy, or and you know, what were you right. now being? What were you now being seen as? Because you've gotten older. You're not, you know, preppies aren't a thing anymore when that, when, you know, preppies right. were big in the eighties and nineties, but what, what kind of roles were you getting called for? You know, I, I, I think that's probably why I was struggling because I was getting called for a lot of leading roles and I'm not really a leading man. Uh, I'm not as tall or handsome, you know, as a John Hamm or someone like that. And, uh, uh, so I just, you know, I, I was reading for, um, I remember I read for Vince Gillian and for um, uh, Breaking Bad. And so I was reading for some of those. And that, you know, I mean, you can't beat Brian Cranston. The guy is, you know, just amazing. Uh, but I remember there were certain roles like that that I felt were good fits for me. Um, but otherwise, I was reading for leading, leading man roles. And and I think that's why I was struggling and why I wasn't getting them. I'm, I'm, 
I'm a little bit more of an everyman uh, character, character actor, than your leading man character actor. It, it, our leading man character, I guess. Now, um, now, who were, like, the guys you'd run into? Like, you know, like I see on Facebook, you know, Spencer Garrett will run into Larry Poindexter, you know, or um, Eric Paladina sure. will run. They all have this certain look, you know, like whether it be, you know, yeah. upper crust. Who were some of the people that you would run into constantly? Was there other actors that you would see and be like, well, hey, this all, guy I, again? I love that you mentioned Larry and Spencer. Those are two friends of mine, and uh, they're great guys, and... Um, it's 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 really nice to observe because they're hardworking guys, man, and and they're out there doing it every day, and and not everybody knows their name, you know, kind of like Cheers. Um, the, the the people I see at a lot of auditions, I see Tim Hutton uh, sometimes. Um, you know, I again, I I fall through those cracks. I I I go up against men that I think are quite a bit older than me. And then I turn around and go up against men that I know are quite a bit younger than me. Um, I'm trying to think of some, some specific names. Spencer and I occasionally, Larry and I occasionally uh, run into each other. Um, Taylor Negron, who has since died, he and I would sometimes be up for the same part um, when there was a little bit more of a character-y part. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a real um, close-knit group of people uh, people at our age who have been doing it for 25, 30 years and not broken out into sort of, you know, quote unquote movie stardom, you know, we're all still working and still working away at it. Now, now what's that like as, you know, and especially earlier, earlier in your career after, you know, after Mind of Mary Man and after Barcelona and Metropolitan where you, you worked in a, it was community somewhat like you guys knew each other you became close what is it like when you go on back then and now too what is it like when you go into a, a new set as a guest star is it like being a kid like i always went to the same school so i don't know what it's like but right. is it like for a new kid being you know in class what's it like when you go on 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 a show on on some someone else's set um you know, Metropolitan, Barcelona, uh, uh, Mind of the Married Man, Man of the People, Pen 15, you know, those are kind of like my set, even though I'm not the star, you know, but it's my set because I'm there a lot. Um, but when you show up as a guest star on someone else's set, um, it is, the the tone is set by the lead actors. And if they are gracious and open, then the whole show is fun that way. I, I just did The Rookie. And um, Nathan Nathan Fillion is such a sweetheart, such a nice guy that you know you show up on that set and you feel a part of the cast, you know, and I've been a part of the crew. Um, now, granted, I've been doing it long enough so that I often know a lot of the crew members, and that makes it easier. Also, I run into people that I've worked with on other shows, and, and so that that's really nice. But if you show up on a set and the lead actor, whether it's a movie or, or, or a, a TV show, and the lead actors are insecure or fearful or sometimes even just quiet, which they, of course, have the right to be. It's not their job to make me feel good. It's my job to show up and do my work. Sometimes it's easier if the lead actor is a little bit more gracious um, and, you know, most of them are. 
uh, and that goes all the way back to Angela Lansbury and James James Garner. They are the most you know gracious lead actors in the world. Um, but Matthew Reese on Perry Mason couldn't have been more you know open and giving about everything that he did. So it's it's often tricky now, to show up, and and also the guest artist is the one often that has to cry and scream <laughs> and yell, you know, and that stuff. Well, now, I, I saw you back in uh, 2011. You did NCIS. I heard Mark Harmon's right. set is, is amazing. Everyone says it's one of the most welcoming sets, that he just is runs a great ship there. Absolutely. I, I've worked with Mark a couple of times, and, you know, he always re- remembers. And I'm, I'm always like, now, did someone tell you that we worked together 10 years ago, or do you really remember? But he'll, he'll sit down and have lunch with you and, you know, uh, I, I went to U of M, University of Michigan, where, where his dad was a football star. So we often end up talking about that. So maybe that's part of the connection. But, no, Mark is, is uh, as, as open, nice, friendly as, as they come, definitely. Now, through your career, you've played um, many different roles, you know, snarky, doctor, or whatever. I've seen a few times you've been, you've been cast as a man of the cloth. What is that like? And, and do you sit there and go, "Holy crap! Really? They see me as a yeah. as something? How is that yeah, as an actor uh, to play that kind of role?" Well, usually I I play a priest or a man of a cloth who has fallen, <laughs> who has uh, some some issues, some problems. Uh, except on last last tycoon, I think that was a pretty pretty straight up uh, priest on that one. Um, I I like it, um, and I think a lot of it comes from the sincerity and earnestness of, of Metropolitan and, and Barcelona, that those two characters were sincere, honest, uh, earnest characters. And I think, you know, if I can toot my own heart, I think I'm a sincere, honest, and uh, earnest uh, person. Um, and so I think that's why I play those roles. And, and the fact that the, the, the men are often fallen I think is all the more in, intriguing. I'm drawn to those kinds of roles where a guy who wants to do good but just can't for whatever reason, you know, alcohol or sex or drugs or, you know, honesty or whatever it is, keeps him from being the person that he knows he could and or should be. That's, that's an exciting character to play. Now, when you get jobs now, are do you still audition? Is there offers, or is it a mix? It's a mix. It's a mix. Um, I, I'm doing ten, ten, fifteen right now. We just finished season two. That's the Hulu show with uh, Anna Conkle and Maya Erskine, who are the 32 year old comedians playing 13 year old girls. And uh, I, I had to audition for that. Uh, but I just finished, not just a year or so ago, I finished the movie Chappaquiddick, but that was an offer. So, you know, some are offers, some, some are, are auditions. I don't mind auditioning. I, I like the process. I like working on it. I like showing the people my idea of the character. But I do feel that when you are just offered a role, you end up doing much better work. Because you know that the creative voices involved want you, not what you can do or what you could do. They they want you, and that that makes a big difference on the set, I think. Now, as an actor, and you know, 
and, and you've been around and you've worked constantly. You know, a lot of auditions are now done by um, video. And where someone, you know, like yeah. like Xander Berkeley, who if he if he has to interview, do a, an audition, sure. he lives in Maine, he can do a video. But then I and so for them him it's convenient. But I've talked to a lot of actors who have been around for a long time that they miss the interaction of a live audition. What's your feeling on that? Absolutely. Um I I like to meet the people involved. I like to meet the director. Um, I love it if the writer's there, uh, even even the producers. I like that give and take. I like, you know, um, I'm, a, I'm a social person, and I usually know the director or know of the director. I, I do my research, and if I don't know them, I find out a little bit about them. Um, so I, 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 I want to know that on the set, the director and I, he or she and I, can can talk about stuff, can try different things. I did a, a TV show, Blue, with Rod, Rod, Rodrigo Garcia, the director-writer. Uh, and, you know, he was just so much fun to work with. We we would do the, the scene, you know, we would do what he calls find the scene by shooting it. So we would, you know, shoot it two or three different ways and kind of keep honing it in little by little uh, and making it, you know, strong, you know, making stronger, more personal uh, choices as you as you went along. So I like that. Um, I I don't like self takes very much because you just go in and perform the role on your self tape and send it in. That said, there is one positive thing of the self tape, which is I get to see exactly what the producers see when I shoot a self tape. So then I get to really judge my work. Um, you know, I, there was a story recently of uh, Adam Driver walking off the set of a Terry Gross interview because he didn't want to hear his, his voice in the interview. And while I understand that, I'm, I'm not crazy about watching myself or hearing my voice either. I do think I'm able to learn by watching myself sometimes, and that's one of the added advantages of a self-tape, which normally I don't like, but there is that. Now, does it does it ever get frustrating? I mean, you've done well, you you work, but you know, as I said, you know, Hollywood's such a fickle town. I mean, I know guys who have been on series and then couldn't get work for a year, you know, and they're so talented. Yeah, yeah. Like, does it? As for you, is it? Do you know that? I mean, you work and you constantly work, so you know you have that. But does it ever just get frustrated? Does it get you down ever when you're going, holy crap, you know, I, I'm not working and I, and I love working. I mean, what's what, what goes through the actor's mind when they have a little bit of time off and they can't book that role or they're just not getting the offers? Um, it's horrible. It's, it, it, it's really tough. Uh, it's the hardest thing about the business. Um, I, people often say to me, oh, I'm watching this show. There's so many great roles for you in that show, and I'm watching this show. You could play that role or whatever it is. And sometimes I don't even go out for those roles. Other times I go out for them and I don't get them. Uh, and sometimes I don't get them because Brian Cranston does or someone like that, which is like, you know, great, because right, you, know, you can't beat Brian. But other times, you know, someone gets it and they don't necessarily shine in the role in, in, in my eyes. Uh, and it's it's very tough, and that's where writing and directing comes in. I, I work with the Road Theater Company here in LA, and 
Uh, I also am working on some movies, getting some movies off the ground, and I've made some short films. And so that picks up the slack a little bit, but there, there's, there's no question. The amount of rejection you get is really hard. Um, and I, I can only imagine that movie stars get it also. Now, granted, they don't get it as much, and maybe it's a different way, but maybe they weren't offered the role in Joker because Joaquin Phoenix was, or you know, and so they they feel the rejection there also. I I, I don't know, but I do know that working actors like myself, Larry Spencer, and you know whoever else, uh, Michael O'Keefe, or uh, you know going back a little ways, uh, Nick Searcy or, or or JT Walsh before he died or whatever. Uh, uh, it's really hard. And uh, you have to have another drive in your life to keep you going. I think your family does that a lot, your children and your wife or, or your husband, whatever. And uh, for me, cycling is a, is a huge uh, release. I can go for a long bike ride and kind of let some of that pain go. Um, but it's really hard. And I think that's why people say, if you can do anything else in this life, do it. Don't, don't be an actor. Right. But if you really can't see yourself doing something else, then go ahead and be an actor. But make sure you're working on other things also. Make sure you're writing, you're directing, you're doing theater, and you're doing yoga or, you know, a runner, you know, or a cyclist or whatever. Now, I want to ask you, um, Pen15. Okay, I know it got nominated for a Golden Globe, and I'll be honest, I had never heard of it, um, and then I got Hulu, I guess, because I got a special on Black Friday for $1.99 a month, so of course I'm going to do it for a year, $1.99, that's nothing, and I want, I'm going to watch it, because right. after I saw one, I saw it got nominated for a Golden Globe, I believe, and I was like, what the hell is this? Yeah, it wasn't nominated, it was, it was nominated for an Emmy. Emmy, okay. Not, not a Golden Globe, yeah. Okay, nominated for Emmy, and then I saw when I was looking up your resume, I saw you were on it. What, what's the show about? Um, it's hysterical. Maya and Anna are two very talented young women, uh, writers and actresses. Um, Sam Zuberman is the director and he is also really talented and wonderful to work with. The show is called Pen15, and when you write it out, it looks like the word penis. And it's a show about seventh-grade girls, and they think that's hysterical. You know, ah, you want to join the Pen15 Club, and then you would write in magic marker on someone's skin, P-E-N-1-5, and they walk around school the rest of the day with penis written on their arm or something. <laughs> and so that's, the, that's the, the basic premise of the show, is that these, it's these silly seventh-grade girls. But the two lead girls... Um, Anna and Maya are played by Anna, Anna Conkle and Maya, Maya Erskine, and they're both 32 years old. And um, I, I play Anna's father, and Melora Walters, the wonderful actress from the P.T. Anderson movies, plays Anna's mother. And uh, all the other kids in the show are really 13, 14 years old. And it's just a show about being in seventh grade and how difficult it is. Uh, and it's it's hysterical, and it's oddly moving. It's it's really wonderful. Season one is is all on online now Hulu, and we just finished shooting season two. We start we start shooting season three in February, uh, and 
it's very sweet. It's friendship. I mean, you're 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 laughing hysterically one minute, and you're tickled and moved the next minute, and you're crying the next minute. Uh, I'm a very I'm very proud of the show. I'm very proud of my work in the show, and I'm very proud of Anna, the woman who plays my daughter, and Maya. Now, after all these years, you do TV and movies. Which do you prefer? Which, as as an actor from being on set, I know every every experience is probably different, but if you had to make a choice and they said, you know what, here's the deal, Taylor, you're going to be, uh, the rest of your career, you're going to work, you're going to make a good living, but you have to choose a movie or TV. What would you go for? God, um, you know, it's so fun. That's such a great question because people always ask, what do you like better, theater, TV, movies? Um and I often say, you know, I, I like best the one I'm doing right now, or I like best the one that pays the most. Um, but if you take those off of the table, um, I like the cocoon of movies the best. Um, I, I like being on location when I'm working, uh, and I like being around the same group of people for uh, a limited period of time, two, three months at a time. Um, and just diving in to the roles. Because sometimes, I'm, you know, I don't want to play certain characters for five years or four or three years like on a TV show. They're, they're too dark. They're, or, or even they're too silly. You know, I, I, my moods change. And so to jump in and do a movie for a month or two it's just about perfect. I, I really like being away from the cell phone, being away from everyday life, being away from my agents and managers, uh, and just settling in and doing the work. Um, that, that is the most re- rewarding uh, and fascinating for me. Um, and then in three months, moving on and doing something different, as opposed to always being silly in a comedy or always being dark in a horror or, you know, uh, uh, cop show or something like that. I, I often wonder how, you know, the people who do uh, Law & Order SVU, you know, can deal with it. Because being a guest star on those shows where you play a pervert or a killer or a rapist, it's just so dark. And uh, be there all the time would be really tough, I think. That's true. Now, now Perry Mason, when does that come out? Do you know? You know, I, 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 I don't know when it, when it comes out. Um, we, we just finished shooting. In fact, I got an email today about the rap party. Um, but look for it because uh, it's, it's a really wonderful show. Tim Van Patten is the director, and uh, he, he directed a lot of Boardwalk Empires and Sopranos, and I think he did the pilot of Game of Thrones. And Tim is a, is a real special director. Uh, all the cast really rallied and really liked him, and, um, it's just, it's a period piece. It's not, it's not based on the TV show with Raymond Burr. It's based on the original stories. So it takes place in 1930s, uh, LA. And again, going back to HBO, you know, we had 350 extras and we had 50 vintage cars on the set. So it's, you know, it's really a special show. I'm, I'm really proud of it and really glad to be in it. That's awesome. Now, any any theater coming up, or what what's coming up in the near future for you? Well, um, the second season of Pen Fifteen 
Um, I'm going to be on The Walking Dead in a couple of weeks uh, on on Michonne. I don't know if you watched The Walking Dead, but Michonne's last episode is the episode I'm on of The Walking Dead. Um, I work a lot with the Road Theater in Los Angeles. I'm, I'm not doing a play with them right right this minute, uh, but I do a lot of readings and stage readings, and I direct a lot of stage readings with them, and I'd like to do a play with them soon. Um, I, I have two daughters in college, or one in college and one in private high school. So I'm I'm in that stage of my career where I need money. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so it's kind of difficult sometimes to commit to uh, a long theater run, knowing that it might take away from some higher paying work. However, I, I think for the most part, doing theater invigorates the actor, certainly invigorates me, and and makes my work better. So that that's why I I do that even even when it doesn't pay very much money. Uh, because it, I think it makes me a better actor. It certainly makes me a better, better person. Well, that's awesome. And, you know, Taylor, I want to thank you. You know, we people just, you know, we've been going back and forth getting this. The one time he was going on, I had to cancel. And then I ended up in the hospital after Christmas for the day. And I was just the next day. I didn't feel like doing it. So he finally, we sure. finally caught up. And uh, now, and people go on, go on IMDb. Uh, Look him up, Taylor Nichols. And, and see his work. Go back and find it. I know if you say into your remote or if you look on uh, I don't know if it's Cinemax or Showtime. They're, they are showing Barcelona and Metropolitan right now, so you can go see that. And now, what's your Twitter handle? Yeah. What's your Twitter? Uh, it's Taylor underscore Nichols 7. Okay, so people, go check him out. Uh, follow me on Twitter. It's at Cooper Talk. That's at Cooper Talk. My Instagram is Cooper Talk 1. Um, you can email me, Cooper, at coopertalk.net. You can find over... 765 or 70 episodes on coopertalk.net. Yeah, amazing episodes, I might add, because I, uh, I looked through a lot of them. Uh, Thank you. The last so, couple of days. so people, listen to, uh, check out Taylor. Keep listening to me. I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guests. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you next time.